Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Sharon Weaver on the show. Sharon is the Executive Director of the San Joaquin River Parkway and Conservation Trust, which works to protect the 22-mile stretch of river between the Friant Dam and Highway 99. This was a wonderful conversation about environmental protection, water rights, the politics of development, and much more. Please support our podcast by leaving a rating and review or consider contributing financially to us at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. Now let's go meet Sharon and Baker will take us there. In the U.S., Fresno's Best. Fresno's Best. All right, so Sharon, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Hmm, where do I like to eat in Fresno? I love uh, Max's Grill and I love Eureka Burger. Um, so those are two of my favorites that I'll mention. Um, so I've had Max's recommended to me by a few different people and I've, I, I still have not been there. I'm relatively new to town. What do you like to get at Max's? Um, they always have really nice fish entrees, um, but they also have great burgers. You know, they are um, just kind of the best local restaurant with California cuisine, and uh, the chef there is great. Um, I, I like everything that they serve there. Gotcha. They also have great fries. There's a there's a uh, three three French fry um, hors d'oeuvre that I love to order when I go with a friend. Ooh, you know, French fries are, uh, have a special place in my heart. I, um, before I moved here, I was, uh, my partner and I lived in Pasadena for a while and there mm-hmm. was this place that we would go to and it was actually like a whiskey bar, but, um, they served food too. And one of the right. options there, uh, they called it fry dinner and they, they basically do like a big plate of fries and then like do some kind of like layer on top of it and you they'd bring you a fork and knife and you would <laughs> eat the fries it could be poutine or they had my favorite was they did a pepperoni pizza fry dinner which wow just i mean so fries <laughs> so what makes max's fries good well i'm not it's been a while since i've had it since we've been during sure. the you know in the pandemic shutdown um but it's a mixture. They have sweet potato fries, and then there are fries that have um, some sort of truffle, truffle oil or truffle um, sprinkles on them. So it's just kind of an interesting. And then they may have eggplant fries too. I can't remember exactly what the combination is, but it's something that is wonderful. So I love it. Yeah, we um, sometimes you know on horrible long car rides with the family or something. One of the games we'll play is last meal where you kind of pick out <laughs> right. the thing that would be in your last meal. And fries will always be included on my list of things too. Mine too. Mine too. Um, so I'm so excited to talk to you because, um, you know, the water issues in California go back almost to the beginning. Um, yes. And rivers and uh, land rights and water rights and it's all so very complicated. Right. If you want to talk to anyone about these issues, um, it's almost like you have to have a PhD in something in order to right. be conversant in some of the, the laws, the rights, the history. Um, and I think when we think about the San Joaquin River, probably the main thing that we think about is driving over it when we head mm-hmm. towards Yosemite. Uh, or you know maybe catching a glimpse of it in certain parts of town, but we don't really think about um, we don't think about the issues around rights, the issues around the history of it, how it got to be the way it is. Um, and so I want to talk first about uh, the San Joaquin River Trust and how that organization was formed. There were some issues in the 1980s that uh, brought it into existence. Uh, What were those events and issues that brought it into existence? That's correct. So there were two development proposals for large subdivisions. These were going to be golf course subdivisions built in the river bottom. One of them was at Ball Ranch and one of them was at Spano River Ranch. Um, Both of those uh, subdivisions, they were plans for building, you know, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 homes 
in the floodplain. And there was a group of citizens that came together and said, you know, building homes in the floodplain really is not a good idea because it's a floodplain. And even though um, we in the valley um, are used to having the floodplain not very active because of Friant Dam, because our river is so managed, there are still times when the river floods. And because of that, um, it's not really a good idea to build houses in those flood prone areas. Just kind of like in Houston, right? Like uh, during that big, uh, was it a hurricane? I can't remember what it was when they had right. the massive flooding. And there were all these questions like, who, how, why did you build right here if right. you knew this place was going to flood? And then you expect the government to bail you out uh, through insurance. So is right. it kind of similar issues to that? Like people were worried about, liability or what was the i mean it's very it's very similar so i mean those are there are all those you know flooding issues and just the fact that it's not a good idea to build houses in the floodplain because eventually those houses are likely to be damaged by a flood um, even if you can get insurance against it, that doesn't mean that it's a good idea. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's also the other issues that um, we as a society don't necessarily place monetary value on, but there are issues like wildlife habitat. The river functions as a wildlife corridor, and when you build a lot of homes in a wildlife corridor, you are displacing wildlife. And so there are people that were concerned about um, issues on both sides of, you know, both the wildlife issues and the, gee, this just isn't practical to build houses in a floodplain. And so they came together and they formed an organization called the San Joaquin River Committee. Um, and they started getting involved in going to land use hearings and uh, advocating against these two particular development projects. Um, it was a very controversial time, and there was lots of hostility on both sides. Um, but out of that, there were a couple of women in our area who attended a Land Trust Alliance conference. And the conference of the Land Trust Alliance, which the abbreviation for that organization is LTA, um, it was held at a Lamar, and this was somewhere around 1985, 86, something like that. And um, one of the people was Coke Hallowell, uh, Mary Savala, Clary Crager, uh, Peg Smith. These are the women that we point to as our founding mothers for our organization. And so they, they learned a little bit about land trusts, which are nonprofit organizations that are used to conserve land. And they decided, well, this is what we need to do. We need to form a land trust and actually buy land along the river to protect it from development. And so out of that just kind of initial group of people that were very actively um, writing letters and you know, getting, getting news media involved in these land use issues and really getting the community engaged in these projects, they created our organization, called, which is called the San Joaquin River Parkway and Conservation Trust, and we were actually incorporated in 1988. So yeah. that's how it all began, is um, this controversy over building houses in the river bottom. Okay, so I, I have a few follow-up questions. Um, one, so you have, you have the, obviously the developers um, mm -hmm. involved, and then you have uh, the people that were initially formed a committee um, and is this in, was this in county land or was this in the city of uh, Fresno where this land was being developed? Uh, two different, two different projects. So the Ball Ranch project is in the county of Fresno. It's outside the city boundaries and Spano River Ranch is just west of Highway 41. And so that was within the city of Fresno. And the great thing, um, the great success story uh, with both of these projects is that now all of that land that was originally proposed for development is in public ownership. And um, both our organization and the state conservancy, the San Joaquin River Conservancy, which was formed a few years after our organization, um, helped acquire those lands. Um, we only acquire land through a willing buyer, willing, selling, willing seller process. Um, but all of that land is now protected and um, will be utilized for uh, wildlife habitat and trails and uh, public open space in the years to come. Are, are there, is it different working with the county versus working with the city and trying to deal with these issues and, and protect land? 
I would say the land use process with land use hearings isn't that different because all of that is sort of governed by state law, how that hearing process works. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, when you're trying to do projects, um, it's a little bit different. I found that the city of Fresno in some ways is easier to deal with just because I think they have more staff and more resources to you know, deal with it's just easier to get in touch with people and kind of get things done on a day-to-day -day basis with the city versus the county, just because they're a little, they're a little bit understaffed. Um, counties tend to be a little under-resourced compared to cities. So when you're trying to get something new done, because after we buy this land, then we want to, for example, build a trail on the land. Well, you have to go through all the same type of permitting and construction process that a developer would go through that is going to build a bunch of homes on the on the property. So even though the the type of project you're doing is different, it's still the same process that you go through. And I would say that in general, I think the city is a little bit easier to get through that process than the county, but you know, we work with both of them. What are what are some of the challenges? I mean, I, I know like we've we've had so many Hollywood movies about land developers being kind of these evil guys with monocles, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and they're just, you know, ultimately they're just people too that are trying to make money and run a business right. or whatever. Right. Um, but what's your perspective on working with uh, real estate developers and uh, is it a collaboration or is it at this point in time, at this point in time, I feel like um, the trust has a really good relationship with all of the local developers. Um, you know, over the years, sometimes when people propose projects, we are still an organization that will um, sort of take an ag advocacy role. And if we think a project is bad for the river, um, bad for wildlife, bad for um, the environment, we will um, we will make comments about that and it times we have even chosen to file CEQA litigation on some projects. And so developers may not always look upon us as friends, um, but I would say that, you know, we've worked with a lot of developers that are um, very environmentally minded and they understand the benefits of the parkway and they understand how the river and public trail systems and open space can be a benefit to their developments. So I do think that um, the world we're living in today and the environment we're working in today is very different than it was in the mid 80s. You know, our, our culture has changed, our values have changed and developers have changed, you know, just like everybody else. So where, you know, in the 80s, um, thinking about impacts on wildlife wasn't necessarily something that a lot of people paid attention to. Now people do pay attention to that because they have to, um, right. because it's just something that is required in our current um, in society today. So what you're telling me is environmental impact reports don't do the whole job. You need also need a society that supports these exactly. ideas as well. <laughs> well, and I mean, the environmental impact report, it only exists because our society has changed to value these things. And so, um, you know, many years ago, you could get a lot, you could get away with a lot more without doing an environmental impact report and really being honest about the environmental impacts of your project, where today, you know, it's pretty much just a given that if you're going to do a major project, you have to do an EIR. And um, that's, that's the law, that's what's expected. But those laws have changed over time. That, that wasn't necessarily the case 30 years ago. Uh, have, I, I, we're kind of just wandering in my own brain's tangents, but here we go. <laughs> um, so have, have EIRs uh, gotten more thorough um, in, in your, during your career, have you seen them improve? I mean, absolutely. Is, is there accountability in terms of who's making the reports and uh, how they're being reviewed? I do think they have improved. And I also think that the, some of the related permitting processes have become more stringent. So there's an environmental impact report, and that is specifically related to California state law, um, the California Environmental Quality Act. Sorry, before you get too far, um, maybe for listeners that don't know what an environmental impact report is, maybe you could just explain that real quick. So basically, an environmental impact report is um, it's studies that relate to uh, every aspect of your project, any sort of environmental impact your project could have. 
And that's not something that's required in every state. I want to be clear that this is a California state law. It's related to the California Environmental Quality Act, and the acronym for that is CEQA. So people will often refer to CEQA, and EIRs are specifically related to CEQA. So if you were doing a project in, say, Nevada, I don't know anything about Nevada environmental law, but um, it would be different than what you have to do here in California. I'm sure you could get away with murder in Nevada because they're like <laughs> dumping nuclear waste in the middle of the Very desert. Possible. But, uh, anyway. <laughs> possible. So it is, I just want to point out there, there are state regulations and then there are federal regulations. But usually when we're talking about development projects, um, most often what the developers are dealing with are state regulations. So the federal regulations only come in if it's either a federally funded project or if their project is going to impact a federal resource. So if, for example, uh, the project was going to impact the area around Friant Dam, which is a federal project, then they might also have to comply with some sort of federal regulation. Um, so so, it, so just, it just depends on what you're impacting, where you're working. There's a lot of variables. So PPPs are a little more, you know, you have more leverage to regulate what's going on versus a company that comes in with all its own private funding. Is that, is that accurate? Say that. I'm sorry. Say that again. Uh, what what's a public private partnership? You know, those oh, would be those okay. would be accountable in different ways than a company that's just bringing in all their own uh, resources Correct. to do a development. Correct. Okay, got it. So let's uh, let's talk about dams. Now, I I know that dams is not your necessarily your expertise, but they do affect rivers. Um, Absolutely. And their flow. Um, you know, it dictates a lot of things, you know, what kind of animal life is going to be there, um, how fast the river's flowing, I'm sure affects a lot. Um, so how do you, um, how, how do dams affect rivers from your perspective? And um, what's your relationship in, you know, not deciding how much water gets pushed out, but in, in being a, a conversation partner with government organizations that are making those decisions? Right. Well, I'll just mention, um, I don't have a lot of expertise on dams themselves. Um, my, my realm of experience is with the San Joaquin River Restoration Program because I've worked on the San Joaquin River for over 20 years. And during my um, entire career, basically, there have been either um, settlement negotiations or now there is a law related to putting more water into the river because of the impacts of Friant Dam. So generally, some of the impacts that I'm aware of from dams, I mean, obviously you are changing the flow, um, the flow regime of a river. So you are damming up the water, it's, you are most likely moving that water to a different area. That's what Friant Dam does. Friant Dam um, was specifically built to provide irrigation benefits. It does provide some flood control benefits, but that wasn't the purpose of the dam. When the dam was built, it was specifically so that we could irrigate land in different areas. And so Friant Dam was built in order to um, irrigate land that is managed by the Friant, uh, Friant Water Authority is what they're now called. They used, used to be called Friant Water Users Authority. Was it built during the uh, depression? Was this one of those depression? No, projects? this was built during the sort of dam building era of the fifties. Okay. Um, so it was built and what happened is they originally planned to divert all of the water in the river. And shortly after it was built, which I apologize, I can't remember the year that this happened. Um, I, haven't, I haven't looked at the dates on this for a while, sure. but there was a lawsuit filed by farmers that are downstream of Friant Dam. In fact, one of them is right within the Parkway Reach. Um, it was a guy named Rank, whose last name was Rank. Um, and so the lawsuit that was filed was called Rank versus Krug because Krug was the head of the Bureau of Reclamation in this region at that time. They sound so, like really sweet guys. <laughs> <laughs> Rank and Krug. <laughs> yeah. So um, the deal was that they dried up the river and took water away from those downstream farmers. And those farmers have rights to the river because when you own land on the river, um, according to California water law, you have riparian water rights. And so uh, the farmers filed a lawsuit. They 
I don't believe they actually um, won the lawsuit. I think they ended up agreeing to have, you know, to settle the lawsuit. And what they agreed to is that the Bureau of Reclamation would deliver water. And I believe they have to deliver, uh, it's been a while since I've looked at these numbers and it's not coming to me right now, but they have to deliver a certain amount of water to a, a place on the river called Gravelly Ford. And so they have to put enough water in the river every year, all the time, so that a certain amount of uh, cubic feet per second of water are reaching Gravelly Ford, which is about 20 miles downstream of the parkway reach of the river. Got 20 it. river miles. So because of that is the reason that we have water in the San Joaquin River, or that we have had water in the San Joaquin River in the actual river channel, for the last you know 50 years or so um, if it was not for that lawsuit we would the river channel would have completely dried up because that was the intention was to just deliver all of the water through the Fryant Kern Canal um, to farmers on the east side of the valley east and south valley and through the Madera Irrigation District Canal um, on the north side of the dam to Madera farmers um, but thankfully thanks to um, rank that did not happen. And, you know, I mean, that was just the farmer that was named in the suit. It was actually a group of farmers that sure. came together to file that suit. So you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I do wonder if we actually did had some kind of, because we have a database of government employees in California. You can mm-hmm. search them right. up or whatever. Right. Uh, but it would be funny to, to figure out how many people are employed based on lawsuits. Because I know my, <laughs> my partner's a, a job in the prison system is based on a lawsuit. And so I know that these things exist. Yeah. Um, but I just wonder, I mean, because you know, when, you, when you frame it that way, it, it makes it sound like, you know, we're just this litigious society. But really what you're saying is there was injustice done. Correct. And so my job exists to protect from future injustice. Right. You know what I mean? And so yep. I, it, but that's my first thing. And second thing, if, if you're a, a somewhat educated adult and you want to try to understand water rights in California, where, do you have any recommendations? Because I feel I say, like I'm, I say go to law school. Go to law school. Yeah. <laughs> and learn how to fight about it. It feels so complicated. I, I wish is, I had like a better understanding. Complicated. It's incredibly complicated. And I, I don't pretend to be an expert. I have a little bit of knowledge based on my experience, but it's a very complicated subject. Well, it just feels like they made it complicated so they could do whatever they want. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> obfuscating it. So it's like, because I mean, really the Owens, Owens Valley or whatever, like that was just pure land grab power. We're going to take water for LA. And I just feel yeah. like all the the different issues are just distracting from like, Nope, you're just taking water from somewhere and you're putting it somewhere else. That's what it yes. is. So anyway, but back that to the is, question. I like how you boiled it down there because that is always what it comes down to. A lot of the time when I read articles about that try to frame um, some of the arguments as like farmers versus environmentalists, um, it really drives me crazy because when you actually look at the players that are fighting, it's almost always farmers versus farmers because those are the people that whose livelihood depends on getting water delivered to their crops. And of course, so of course they, you know, they have reason to, they have more skin in the game, so to speak. Um, they're going to fight if they need to, to try to maintain their livelihood. Um, but I just think it's, it's kind of interesting, like over the years, you know, over and over again, I see news stories that, that try to frame things as says farmers versus environmentalists, and it's very rarely the case. One case where it really was farmers versus the environment, though, if we want to fast forward on San Joaquin River history, is um, the lawsuit that was filed in the mid-80s. I think it was actually filed in 1982, and it was filed by the Natural Resources Defense Council. And this is a lawsuit um, against the Bureau of Reclamation again, and it was filed by the Natural Resources Defense Council um, because when they built Fryant Dam and diverted most of the river's flow to these various irrigation canals, um, that caused the extinction of the salmon run that historically existed on the San Joaquin River. So after they built Fryant Dam for a few years, they tried trucking salmon, 
um, from place to place on the river to try to maintain the salmon run because basically what happened is that certain areas of the river dried up and so there was no longer connectivity from the river here in the valley out to San Francisco Bay, which is historically how the run operates. You know, it goes through the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta out to San Francisco Bay. Um, so once those sections of the river dried up and salmon couldn't migrate back and forth, um, you know, over time they disappeared. They tried tracking them, it wasn't practical. They didn't really have the money or the resources to do that. And so the, the uh, salmon went away. So in the early 80s, the Natural Resources Defense Council and an environmental coalition um, filed suit against the Bureau of Reclamation. And eventually what they kept prevailing on, and they went through lots of different um, iterations of the lawsuit, you know, different appeals and different decisions that were appealed up to higher courts. And what they, what they continued to prevail on was a state law. It's a Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, it's a law that the Department of Fish and Wildlife is responsible to implement. And it says that you can't take away so much water that you kill off a species below a dam, that dam operators have to continue putting enough water in the main river channel um, to maintain the species that were originally living there. So uh, because of that law, they continued to prevail and eventually the farmers decided, you know, we're going to be better off if we figure out a way to work together and settle this lawsuit than if we let a judge make a decision about how uh, to work out this case. And so that those settlement discussions began, um, I think they began like way back in the late 90s. Um, and they were going on for a number of years. They had a few stops and starts as, you know, it's not unusual for this kind of thing. And then the law was actually signed in 2000, or the settlement agreement was finally signed in 2006. And the San Joaquin River Settlement Act was actually signed into law in 2009 by President Obama. So it is now the law of the land. Um, you will hear people on a regular basis. Um, we have a Valley Congressman, that frequently says that he's going to dismantle the law. Um, but I don't really think that's going to happen because the farmers that are involved that really understand the issues know that um, undoing the restoration program isn't going to help them because what it would do is put everything back in the courts. And ultimately, they're better off trying to work you know, productively, cooperatively, with the environmental coalition than fighting things out in court. Do you see that as the way forward, more mediation, less uh, judges slapping? Because I mean, you know, you want some control right. at, at the end of the day. Um, and I know that historically that hasn't always been the case, that the, that the two sides are willing to mediate. Right, right. I don't, I mean, I think every situation is different. I do think that the restoration program will become a success story. Um, I'm hopeful. You know, we have salmon in the river now. We have, an, it's an experimental population that they are surviving. There are salmon that have um, made it out, hatched here on the San Joaquin and made it out to the bay and back since the restoration program activities have been going on. And I think that population will continue to grow and it will end up being a success. And there's also a water management um, portion of the Settlement Act. And so um, there has to also be funding and thought given to how you replace water that would have normally gone to the farmers. Um, and that is now going into the river channel rather than into one of those irrigation canals. So ultimately, I think it's going to be a success. Um, I haven't really heard any, any negative press about it for the last few years. So I feel like people are getting to the point where you know, they, they are working towards success on this. I do wonder, you know, with the, the state of the aquifers in the valley and how water is being used so quickly, if uh, in you know, the next hundred years, as those start to dry up, if the, if the, you know, the precious water from the San Joaquin River will just become more coveted and we'll end up back in court, you know, fighting over every last drop. Well, I mean, that's certainly one potential uh, <laughs> doomsday potential scenario. Future. Right. <laughs> it's, it's one potential scenario. Um, but again, I'm very hopeful. 
you know, we have Sigma on the books now, which is regulating groundwater, which hasn't ever been regulated in California before. And that's part of the part of why we're in the situation we're in, because it was a resource that people were just using um, and there was just no accountability on it. And now there is. And so I think that's going to change things. And I think we will see our aquifers recover because of that. Can you talk a little bit about that legislation for people not familiar? Uh, SIGMA is the acronym SGMA for the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but again, if I start talking about that particular <laughs> law, I'm just going to um, demonstrate <laughs> how little I, I'm not an expert in it. Yes, yes. Um, but basically, it is, it's recent legislation. I don't even remember the year that the legislation was signed, but it is now changed. It has significantly changed water law in California because up until this time, until Sigma became a law, groundwater was completely unregulated. And if you could put a pump in the ground and pump it out, you had the right to it, period. And that's not the case anymore. Yeah, and I don't think people know that. I think, you know, because I was like most of us, I was a. Uh, on TV trying to find something new to watch. Um, I've been watching a lot of old movies, by the way, and Chinatown came up uh, recently and I rewatched that one. If you, if you wanted, to, if you wanted to watch Jack Nicholson and uh, what's, what's, what's her name from Bonnie and Clyde? What was her name? That actress? I don't even remember. I anyway, remember. But, but water issues um, go all the way back and that's a great right. movie that really captures right. the mood of it all. It does. Um, but anyway, I was watching, I turned on this show uh, called Goliath and their newest season had, it was set in the Central Valley and it was a, all a fight about water rights. And, oh, okay. you know, and, and, you know, well, this guy that owns a bunch of almond orchards or whatever, like they all do, uh, was, was drilling this massive drill in the middle of the night to try and pull water from a certain place. And, <laughs> you know, I think that's what people imagine uh, is the valleys like is a bunch of guys with guns with the, whoever has the biggest drill wins. Um, but hopefully, you know, that's, that's an old, Central Valley and, and we and you know things are changing in a positive way. I think so. I think it is I think it is changing due to Sigma and although you know there no law is perfect and there are certainly going to be people that are trying to skirt the rules and you know it all depends on how it's implemented. At least it's a step in the right direction and I think that's a good thing and it makes people um, it, it just forces people to rethink how they're using water and prioritize water use in a different way that we didn't, we didn't have to prioritize in the past. Great. Let's talk about stakeholders along the river. So we've talked about a few of them. We have farmers, obviously, but right. uh, who, are, who are the other major stakeholders uh, along the San Joaquin? Well, certainly, we've also talked about developers. Those are stakeholders. Um, I, you know, I come from kind of the environmental background of let's remember that there are stakeholders without a voice, and those are plants and wildlife resources that um, we have to be their advocates because they can't be advocates for themselves. So I think of um, our natural resources as a stakeholder as well. Um, and then, of course, we've got river recreationists, um, anglers of all types, and uh, people that like to kayak and canoe the river, um, boaters, anglers. I actually watchers. float. I float the San Joaquin every summer. Excellent. And uh, I start almost near Friant Dam. And it's it's when it's a hundred and whatever outside, it's a wonderful, admittedly slow moving experience. Yes. Um, and there's so many, I mean, if you go down to, I forget what's Lost Lake uh, campgrounds mm -hmm. down there. Like if you've never been out there during the summer, you, you, you'd think you're at obviously not in COVID times, but well, actually it, last yeah, summer, it, it, it didn't, it didn't really change. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of people out there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it is it is actually a big recreation area and I don't I don't know Absolutely. if people in the city of Fresno know that. Some do, I'm sure, but not all. Um so obviously you've got different stakeholders using things for different reasons and mm -hmm. you know one of the things that you learn when you're dealing with these issues is like the it's it's helping them mediate, right? When they come into conflict. And so, you know, if you have a farmer and a recreate a person that's using the river for recreation, they might their their situations might not always conflict, but they might. 
And if you're a farmer and uh, the environment, it, it might conflict. So how do you, so how do you look at managing those different stakeholders needs and desires? Well, I'm going to approach that a different way because our organization, again, is a land trust. And so our approach has been, well, buy the land. And so then you can manage the uses. And so over the years, we have managed to buy, um, it's a little over 4,000 acres now of the 6,000 acres or so that were sort of targeted in the San Joaquin River um, Master Plan, San Joaquin River Parkway Master Plan. And that's those are lands that are conserved between Bryant Dam and Highway 99. Um, so to me, that's the best answer, is that you actually buy the land, you protect it from development, and then you work with various groups or, and figure out how to utilize it, um, going through different planning processes. So as an example of that, <clears throat> excuse me, there's two properties on the Madeira side of the river that have been combined. We operate them as one site that we call Sycamore Island. It's basically all of the acreage um, below Highway 41. It's, about, it's more than 700 acres out there that are now in public ownership. And we have trails out there um, for people to walk, bicycle, horseback ride on. Um, this is a site that has, is a very popular public fishing access point. And we're also actively doing habitat, um, habitat enhancement all the time by removing invasive plants and replanting native plants. So we're trying to um, just add all kinds of layers of value and uses at that site that can be compatible. And again, you know, that, that doesn't include development. It doesn't include housing developments because we think those don't belong in the river bottom. Those really belong above the bluffs and in areas that are less environmentally sensitive and less prone to fret to flooding. Yeah. So, I mean, typically when we think about conflicts, we think about, you know, developers and, and, and uh, the people protecting the, the land along the river, but um, sometimes recreation can conflict with restoration. I mean, you just think about, you know, right. national parks like Yosemite, like, like the park rangers are out there having to manage crazy tourists all the time. Right. Um, and obviously we don't have park rangers out there along the river. And so do, do you think restoration and recreation conflict sometimes? And how do you, how do you deal with that conflict? I think they, yes, they can conflict and it's really all about management. I'm somebody that really believes that you need to have staff on site. So we don't have uh, park rangers per se on the parkway, but the properties that we manage when they are open to the public, we have, we have staff members that are on site. So that, you know, I personally don't believe that you need a peace officer carrying a weapon to manage the public. I think you just need somebody that can provide information and be eyes on the ground to kind of keep track of what people are doing and so that people know that there are people on site watching them. And I think once you establish that, then you really don't have as many conflicts. I mean, certainly from time to time, you might have issues where you have a sensitive species and maybe the wildlife agencies are going to say, oh, you shouldn't have public access in this site. Um, you know, so the San Joaquin River Parkway Master Plan, which has its own EIR that goes along with it, um, it has provisions for seasonal closures of trails when, when that's necessary to protect wildlife resources. So I do think that all of those types of conflicts are very manageable. And it's just about, um, again, having people on the ground and educating people and helping people value uh, the resources that are out there, which I think we have a lot of people in the community that really do value those resources. So I personally haven't seen a lot of conflicts between, for example, people in wildlife. Most of the people that want to want to spend time on the parkway, they they want to be out there because they care about those resources. Got it. Well, so uh, just for a moment, taking out our crystal balls, I mean, you we definitely see the push of uh, sprawl further out, especially along uh, the 41 into Certainly. Madera County. Right. Um, so I guess my question is, um, is there is there a way to do development on the river you think that would be satisfactory to you guys? I mean, I, I just feel like I see this push and I just wonder um, if eventually there's going to be some kind of compromises and because there, there's already a bunch of houses going up out there. 
Um, right. And the, the area that you're talking about, for example, where the Riverstone developments are and Tesoro Viejo, like the, the developments that are east of Highway 41 are in a development area called the Rio Mesa area. And that's an area that was planned for development um, by Madera County. It went through all kinds of planning processes and we were involved in those hearing processes very early on in my career with the trust in the early, um, or I'm sorry, late 90s, early 2000s. So yes, all of that land is slated for development. However, that is bluff top land, not river bottom land. So I would say the difference between the developments that are proceeding today versus developments that were proposed that started the parkway effort is that these developments are building houses above the river. They're not trying to build houses in the river bottom. And the regulations today really make it um, extremely difficult to build in the river bottom. So I don't really foresee that happening in the future. It's something that we have to watch certainly all the time, um, but the regulations have changed over the years, just making it because people, because we've had flood disasters and people recognize it's not a good idea to put houses down in flood prone areas. So I'm just hopeful that that's not going to happen. And again, as I was mentioning earlier, a lot of developers today recognize the benefits of open space. They recognize that um, their future clients want trails, they want to see open space, they want to know that um, the developers have sort of a green, um, a green philosophy and are trying to protect natural resources rather than destroy them. Um, so I think developers are recognizing that and are doing their best to, to be sensitive to the environment. Okay, so um, just a few more questions to close up. Uh, first, um, for people that haven't really spent much time along the San Joaquin, where, where do you recommend they go? Trails or different places uh, to really get to know the river that's part of their, their city in a lot of ways? Well, a good place to start out is where our headquarters is located, and that's the River Center on Old Friant Road. So um, it's near the intersection of Friant and Copper. Um, you turn left from Friant Expressway, you turn onto Old Friant Road, and that curves down into the river bottom. Um, our headquarters is uh, in a barn-like building, but it's behind an 1890s restored ranch house that is restored as an interpretive center about the river. Excuse me. Um, and it's a site that's open every day. We have a section of the Lewis S. Seaton Trail that comes into the site. We have a nature trail designed for preschool age children called the Hidden Homes Nature Trail that people can bring their kids out to visit. And there's a lot of information available about the parkway and other places to visit at that awesome. site. What, uh, what's, what's your area of focus right now? And what are some programs you're working on and what, what's your vision, vision for maybe the next five to 10 years of uh, the trust? So our most recent acquisition, uh, um, so you may have seen, there's already been some media articles about the fact that we recently acquired Sumner Peck Ranch, which is up in France. We're really excited about this acquisition. And part of the reason that it's important to us it is that it is one of the remaining, remaining pieces of Ball Ranch. And so, it's one of the final pieces of that original property that started the whole parkway effort with the controversial development proposal. And now, you know, we have just purchased another part of it. And the part that we purchased links Ball Ranch on the Fresno side of the river and Ledger Island on the Madera side of the river. So it's a property um, that's currently developed as farmland and we're gonna continue farming it for a few years as we plan for habitat enhancement at the site. And then over the years, we'll gradually take crops out and restore it back to Valley Oak Savannah habitat so that it blends seamlessly with the surrounding acreages. And right now, we're having open house days every weekend so people can come out and visit the site and explore the trails and just see everything it has to offer. Um, we hope very soon to have it open on a daily basis. So the goal is to have it open on a daily basis, just like the River Center. That's amazing. Can I ask you about the salmon initiative a little bit? I'm, I'm very curious sure. about this. Sure. So when you talk about the salmon initiative, I think you're talking about the San Joaquin River Restoration Program. Yeah. And that is the program um, that I mentioned earlier. It, it was the result of a lawsuit that was filed by the Natural Resources Defense Council frequently abbreviated as NRDC, 
and an environmental coalition. Now, whenever I talk about this, I always just like to mention our organization was not part of that litigation. We, we were not part of that lawsuit. Um, we were getting involved and our organization was forming during the same kind of time frame that that lawsuit was being filed, but we were not directly involved in that. However, once the parties started um, settlement discussions, because we are an entity that works on the river in this region, um, we have done lots of projects related to the restoration program. So we weren't part of the original uh, litigation, but we do work um, in concert with the agencies that are implementing the program, and we have gotten to work on a lot of projects related to the restoration program. So I think it's a really exciting thing. <clears throat> I do just want to dispel the myth people sometimes think oh you know putting salmon back in the river means you need to put all the water back into the river that's not how it works um, salmon migrate at certain times of year and so what they need is pulse flows that create connectivity between uh, the river right below Friant Dam out to Pacific Ocean at those specific times and so every year there's a restoration administrator that works with all the agencies involved in the restoration program to figure out what the flow regime needs to be based on the water year, the amount of water that farmers need, the amount of water that fish need to survive in the river. And he comes up with a recommendation saying, this is, this is how much water the restoration program needs. This is when those flows need to happen. And so it's not, a, it's not an all year thing. Um, it's certain times of year, there is more water put into the river channel. But if you were to go out to the river right now today, this is a very low flow period. And there's only, I think there's 260 cubic feet per second in the river right now. Um, it doesn't look much different than it did before the restoration program. So I just like to explain that because I often hear things on the news where people talk about, oh, you know, this is gonna take all the water away from the farmers. No, it does take a little bit of water away. And the amount um, that goes into the river channel versus into the Frank Kern Canal varies from year to year. But it's not, it's not as extreme as people sometimes make it out to be. Yeah. Maybe they can send 10 less pounds of almonds to China. I think they'll survive. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 you know, having been educated in the Bay Area, I'm, you're, you always have these environmentalists that don't have a lot of information that are making kind of grand claims about the way things should be. And the truth is, is you know, the, the frying, I mean, some dams are coming down around California. Right. I mean, that, that's something that's happening. Right. Um, but the Friant Dam is different. Throughout the West. It's different, right? The Friant Dam <coughs> is not a dam like the dam in Santa Barbara that was Correct. coming down or Correct. some of the ones along the, uh, the coast. This is, a, this is a pretty necessary dam uh, for Correct. a lot of different groups. And so, you know, <laughs> as much as we yes. would like things to look like they did when John Muir was wandering around, you know, and there's maybe we don't want grizzly bears wandering or bears wandering <laughs> around the valley or whatever. Um, but I, I don't think anyone that has a sense of realism knows that that's not going to happen. Correct. And so it's about, it's about marginal changes, not, you know, cause I, I remember a few years ago, I watched um, some movie that won some award at some film con uh, festival. And it was like a environmental thriller where they like blew up a dam or something. And I think those kind of extremes of like, you know, we just, we, we got to rock the world back to, or go back to the, you can't ever recreate Eden is what I'm right. saying. And right. I think people want to recreate Eden, but what you're doing uh, by doing restoration maybe is restoring some things, but it's really in a sense, creating something new. Right. Uh, That's why that, we often refer to it as habitat enhancement, because you're exactly right. We have changed our environment and we can't, because of the way we've changed our river, we're not going to go back to the past. So we're enhancing it, not restoring it in the technical sense. Yeah. Let's uh, finish by talking about books. And these can be related to environmental stuff or California stuff or, or whatever, really. Uh, but what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? The Soil Will Save Us is a book that really impacted me a few years ago. And I just, it's an amazing book. It's something I knew nothing about um, soil science or the importance of soil conservation. But it's a book that um, 
talks about the fact that the soil and the way the soil functions when it is healthy and the organisms that live in the soil can actually help us with our carbon problem and uh, climate change issues that are happening today. So I just think it's a really exciting thing. I know there's, there's a lot of documentaries out now that um, interview some of the same people that are interviewed as part of this book. So it's one of my favorites and it's a book that I talk about a lot. Um, a lot of my other reading um, is not work-related. I'm a horse person as well, and um, I'm a big fan of all kinds of horse literature, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. That's so. awesome. Well, yeah, soil science is, a, is one of those things that we should know, we should be all well-versed in, being in the yes. Central Valley, where the soil is our livelihood in many ways. And, you know, the soil got here because of, you know, this geological time period in which, you know, this was, this was an area filled with water, right? Right. And um, understanding it and understanding what we need to do to maintain it is important. Um, well, and related to that, I will just mention The Worst Hard Time is a great book about the Dust Bowl, mm. um, which is also related to soil science because the Dust Bowl was a man-made disaster. It was not a natural disaster. Yeah, I actually just recently read that book. That was on my my list to read. And it's a fascinating the way he does the history too. I think that one's yeah. a great one for any especially people in California that live in Central Valley, given given the kind of like migration heritage of yes. a lot of the people here. That's a that's a really important one to read. Well, so where can people find out uh about what's going on uh, with the trust and how can they contribute? Well, please visit our website, riverparkway.org, or visit us on Facebook. We're very active on Facebook, especially. Also, we have, you know, we utilize Instagram. Those are kind of the two social media channels that we're most active on, but we keep people updated, and those are great ways to find out about our projects and programs. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate talking to you and you talking to me. It's been fun. All thanks, right. Jordan. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay tuned for our next episode, which is a combined podcast episode where I combine forces with another local podcast called The Preacher's Hour. Stay tuned for that. And until next time, have a great week.